Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to Louisiana home of Cajun cuisine, the birthplace of jazz, and the cultural heart of voodoo in America. Thanks in large part to its portrayal in pop culture, voodoo gets a pretty bad rap, usually limited to curses, zombies, and quote-unquote voodoo dolls. Truth is, voodoo is really just a caricature of the Afro-Caribbean religion of voodoo. There's a lot to voodoo as a belief system, but much of it is rooted in personal creeds and practices. That includes folk medicine and a system of ethics that are passed down the generations through proverbs, stories, songs, and folklore. That's not to say that some of the more sensational aspects of pop culture voodoo don't have their roots in voodoo as well. Animal sacrifice was definitely a thing. And zombies absolutely do feature in Voudon as well. But rather than the malicious flesh-eaters we see in books and on screens nowadays, they were most often victims. Corpses that were reanimated and controlled by priests, either as a means of punishment, or sometimes even a cheap source of slave labor on plantations. But despite being a largely misunderstood and misrepresented religion, Louisiana has plenty of stories about the darker, more dangerous side of voodoo, too. Just ask the people of Frenier. On September 29, 1915, a towering wall of black cloud swept up from the Gulf of Mexico, like a huge shadowed creature rising from the depths. It charged toward the Louisiana coastline with a sudden ferocity that caught many of those who lived on the coast unprepared. Clustered on the edge of Lake Pontchartrain, the towns of Frenier, Ruddock, and Napton were hit particularly hard. Frenier was rapidly submerged under a storm surge that rose up to 13 feet, with battering 125-mile-an-hour winds that tore through the streets, uprooting trees and ripping buildings apart like kindling. 
many people sought refuge in the perceived safety of the railway depot. But even that structure couldn't stand up to the onslaught and collapsed, killing 25 people. When the storm cleared two days later, Frenier, Ruddock, and Napton had been wiped off of the map. Homes were flattened, businesses left in rubble, and huge sections of the railway, the lifeline connecting those communities to outside civilization, was utterly erased. As survivors started to emerge from hiding to survey what was left and begin coming to terms with the magnitude of destruction, one phrase was on nearly everyone's lips. The storm, they said, had come out of nowhere. But despite the assertion, there had been a warning, of sorts. Julia Brown, called Aunt Julia by many, was well known to many of the residents in Frenier, and had a reputation that had spread to the nearby towns as well. If you had a problem you couldn't solve by conventional means, maybe you had a sick family member, or you suspected your neighbor of stealing your cabbages, chances are your next stop would be the house by the edge of the Manchac Swamp. For a price, Julia would craft you a charm or place a curse and, hopefully, your troubles would fade away. Aunt Julia, you see, was a voodoo priestess, and by all accounts, a pretty capable one. There were no doctors in the communities of Frenier, Roddick, or Napton, so people would often turn to Julia Brown for healing and midwife services. She became a folk healer of sorts, what's usually referred to in Louisiana as a trateur, and she must have been good at it, because she rarely lacked for customers. During her downtime, though, she could often be found sitting on her porch, singing and strumming her guitar. But her popularity had a downside, too. It's said that Aunt Julia came to resent the people of Frenier, felt they took her and her services for granted, and that growing resentment was reflected in the songs she made. One song she began singing in particular said that one day she would die and that everything would die along with her. Remember that hurricane I mentioned? Well, when the winds and rain came tearing through the town of Frenier, it happened to interrupt a very important event. The hurricane, it turns out, arrived right in the middle of Aunt Julia Brown's funeral. Her song, it seems, wasn't far from the truth. While some people have speculated that Julia had summoned the storm with a voodoo curse, others are sure her words were more warning than hex. But if you want to know for sure, according to some, you might still have the chance to ask. Rumor has it that Aunt Julia never truly left the swamp where Frenier once stood. But I suspect you'd have more to fear from the alligators. Let's move on to some fiction. Our first story of the evening comes from Christopher O'Halloran. Christopher O'Halloran has taken his formal acting education and done little with it, aside from creating Living the Dream, a currently unproduced TV show. After studying for two years at Van Arts, Chris realized that telling stories was at the heart of his passion, so he started using written word to do just that. His shorts have been published by Scarlet Leaf Review, Heater, Fabula Argentea, Hellbound Books, and others. You can reach him at croauthor.wordpress.com. Join me for Christopher O'Halloran's The Phoenix. First published in Scarlet Leaf Review, March 2016.
The broad-shouldered men limped through the corridor of Ashley's large Tudor mansion, and she followed, the long ice-pick poised to strike again. His blood dripped dull off the end and splashed on the area rug stretching out towards her study. She could hear his rasping breaths coming quicker and quicker as he dragged his wounded leg. You bitch! He shouted at her as he took hold of the door and slammed it shut. Always, Ashley thought. Always bitch. Every language, every accent, throughout the years it was always bitch. The word men threw at her when faced with their defeat. It used to get her blood pumping. It used to fuel her hatred. But now she rolled her eyes at it the same way a mother will roll her eyes at a petulant child after a temper tantrum. He would have locked the door and started looking for a phone. That would be after he saw there were no windows or obvious methods of escape. Most of them were the same once they were weakened past the point of fighting. They resorted to their basic instincts, acting like frightened rabbits in a trap. Ashley heard the frantic noises coming from the study as she opened a door on the east wall of the hallway. She removed the coats hanging from the rod stretching across the narrow closet as the man flipped over furniture. She entered the combination to her safe as the man slid her heavy desk in front of her door. She removed the 9mm pistol from beside a journal full of names and descriptions as the ragged breaths came slow from the study, punctuated with curses. The gun was always loaded. The safety was always off. Safety was never a concern. It wasn't always this easy, but the latest century of her long life introduced more conveniences with each decade. Weight was always reassuring. The weight of a rock two fists large, the weight of an obsidian dagger both reflecting and absorbing light somehow, the weight of an axe well used and well maintained, the weight of a fully loaded Beretta full of death and destruction. It made her feel strong, giving her the mechanical advantage where her own muscles had failed her. Hey, Trevor, how you holding up in there? Can I get you anything? Another glass of wine? I had to hold my breath earlier when you were panting and drooling over me. Maybe you'd like some gum. She raised the gun and pointed it at the door, waiting for his reply. Nothing. Why don't you come out here and we can get back to where we left off? If you could talk to my previous partners, they would tell you I am worth bleeding for. If Ashes could talk. Still nothing. Not even the sound of his labored breathing. Had he bled out in there? Ashley frowned at the thought of that. He seemed tougher than that. Come on, you limp-dick faggot! Maybe if you beg me nice, I'll keep it to myself that you like to choke down cocks on the weekend. I won't tell anybody that you like to pull on your tiny wiener when your boyfriend lovingly fucks you in your little ass. When all else fails, call them gay. Men hate that. Fuck you! shouted Trevor. The big man with the strong arms, strong cologne, and cheesy pickup lines. Ashley aimed eight inches lower than where the sound came from and fired six shots through the study door into what she hoped was his center mass. Her ears rang with a high pitch absurdly contrasted with the deep barks from the pistol. Many times she contemplated buying a suppressor, but she just loved that blowback so much the powerful ejaculation as her bullets raced out the end of the barrel towards the destruction of anything she loathed. Through the ringing, she imagined she would hear the sliding of his heavy body and the thump as it hit the ground. In reality, that wouldn't have been the case. The bullets would have tossed him off his feet immediately, but she thought herself an artist and her interpretation seemed more poetic, if it had cliché. She forgave herself for the cliché. When you're my age, she pondered, it's hard to pinpoint when things transition from fashionable to hackneyed. She repressed that giddy feeling that always comes after a kill and walked towards the study. When she reached the door, she stood on tiptoes and ran her hand along the top of the frame. The feeling of the key was unfamiliar. She never had a man run to the study. Nothing about the long hallway suggested escape. It was dark and terminated in a single room. Most men, if they got the chance to flee, would run along the path they entered through, the one Ashley led them down, sometimes by the hand, sometimes by the tie, sometimes by something else.
Ashley had lived long enough to become mildly bored at the patterns she found, and this change of pace invigorated her. Still kicking, honey? She cooed through the closed door as she slid the key in, feeling the tumblers rise and catch like puzzle pieces. Maybe he was still alive and she could watch his life leave his eyes. She imagined herself sitting on his chest as it hitched, him powerless underneath her. She wanted to feel his blood soak her pants as it seeped out of six little holes in his chest. My big strong man is awfully quiet. Maybe I can liven him up, she purred as she turned the handle and pushed on the door. It moved slowly against the weight of the desk and she had to lower her shoulder to get more power into it. She heaved and the door slipped open a foot. She squeezed in and felt a splitting heat as Trevor plunged a letter opener into her neck. He followed her to the ground as his damaged leg gave way and the thin blade slipped, spraying arterial blood across his chest. It scalded him, and he frantically ripped his shirt over his head and threw it away from him as he lay beside the dying woman who just five minutes ago thrust a heavy ice pick into his leg. He rolled away from her as the blood pumped from the side of her delicate neck. Had he not known the monster she was, he would have thought her beautiful. Ashley stared at him, surprise showing in her eyes. At first, she tried to staunch the flow of blood escaping her, but realized the futility of it, and gave up. A smile spread over her face, touching her eyes. You look familiar, she said. Have we met before? Trevor shook his head. My brother. Her smile widened as she remembered. Smaller than you. Still big, though. He nodded and got to his feet his right leg aching where the ice-pick-sized hole oozed. He didn't fight as much as you. Probably because I got him in the temple. Got him while he was inside of me. Her smile widened, and he thought, if she smiled any more, her head would open up like Pac-Man. I felt him shrivel up. I squeezed him out like a baby, dying instead of being born. Trevor stepped over her and into the hall making sure to avoid the spreading blood that was pooling around her. It didn't go very far, just ran tightly along her body, already beginning to congeal. He saw the open closet door and glanced inside. Rock-a-bye, baby, in a treetop. Ashley sang from inside the study, her voice sweet and bursting with love. He grabbed a shoebox and dumped out its contents, faded Polaroids of men, faces full of shock. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. He pulled a scarf down from where it lay draped over the rod, paused, then pulled down another. When the bow breaks, the cradle will drop. The words floated on the still air, pregnant with the next line. He waited for it. One second. Two. Three. Ten. Nothing. Then, the sound of a crackling fire. Trevor saw a broom and dustpan tucked away in the corner and grabbed it. He limped over towards the study but was frozen by the sight of a raging inferno. Although the heat baked off and made him wince, the wallpaper showed no sign of burning. The door stood surrounded in flames but remained unburnt as well. Ashley lay in the middle of the fire eyes closed, and smile retracted to a peaceful, content look. She looked like she could be dozing as the fire consumed her. He sat and waited, back resting against the wall of the corridor. One minute, two, three, twenty. When she was ashes, the fire died down and faded away. No smoke rose from the pile. With a grimace, he rose, using the broom to aid him. He hobbled over to the pile and began sweeping the ashes into the dustpan. When the pan was full, he dumped it into the shoebox and repeated the process until he had gotten as much out of the carpet as possible. He placed the lid on the shoebox and wrapped the two scarves around it as tight as he possibly could. The fabric seemed too thin to hold anything of great strength inside, but he wasn't worried. In the trunk of his car, he had chains. His drive home would take him over a bridge crossing a river just a kilometer away from the ocean. 
He walked out of her large home, gently closing the door behind him, the shoebox cradled in his arm. Five minutes into his drive, the wail of a baby cried out from the shoebox in the passenger seat. Trevor shifted into fifth gear. That was Christopher O'Halloran's The Phoenix, as read by Alex Ford. When Alex isn't rocking around the nation in her band, Ford Theater Reunion, she's holed up in her guest room following a different passion, recording audiobooks and editing manuscripts. An avid reader and writer, she delights in helping people bring their creativity to life. You can check out her exploits, mystery bruises, and a most handsome cat on Facebook or Instagram. Thank you, Alex. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second story comes from Ivan Zorik. Ivan Zorik lives and writes in Portland, Oregon, after living through a more than eventful childhood in war-torn Yugoslavia. He has published short fiction in his native Serbian, and just recently decided to take on writing in English full-time. When he is not writing, he spends his days alternating as payroll ninja and a dad to four kids, a Portuguese water dog, four chickens, and a squirrel. Children of the Night Feast your ears on Ivan Zorik's Dead Boy Arpeggio, a Tales to Terrify original. Today, I turned 14, wearing another boy's name and fingers. They fit awkwardly, both a size too big, bumpy. I rolled the name across the roof of my mouth, a cascade of consonants rushing to break free. 
it lingers inside for a moment too long and dies before I can speak it into the world. The one I was born with sneaks past it, an underlying current of syllables, almost a sigh. I need to practice more. I look around, nervous someone might have overheard the transgression. The schoolyard is empty. There's still another 45 minutes before kids swarm the streets surrounding Benjamin Franklin High School. It's trash pickup day, and the morning traffic is heavy on Division Street. My senses drown in waves of pollution. The cars are too noisy here, too bright. They even smell funny. Nothing like the cheap, watered-down gasoline I'm used to. My dad's old Yugo could fit inside one of these truck beds with no problem, especially after. I am early because Ray drops me off on his way to work. We both get up around five every morning, devour whatever breakfast Melina makes for us, and leave before she even has a chance to kiss us goodbye. I do not like her kissing my cheeks. Ray does not like kissing hers, or touching, for that matter. I wonder sometimes how they do it at night. I can hear them often, a break-in snoring filled with grunts and slams of the headboard against the walls. How does that feel for her? Where does she keep her hands, her fingers? I look at my hands as they shiver in cold morning breeze. They've turned purple, the tips of my fingers two shades darker than the rest. I turn them back and forth in front of my face and look for signs of procedure. I see no stitches. The skin looks flawless. Uninterrupted tapestry of lines and dry skin. We will be paying it off for years. A foot pushes into my back and I fall forward, hands and nose scraping the pavement. Behind me, laughter. You best be careful walking around on all this ice. It's so easy to slip and fall. I know who it is, and I smile where they can't see me. Took them long enough. Jason and his cronies. I can never tell them apart. All three look the same in those school jackets and too tight pants. Jocks, I think they call it here. I wouldn't know. They've had it in for me ever since my first day at Franklin. Maybe it was my accent. Maybe it was the fact I ignored them most of the time, pretending my English was too rudimentary to understand what they are saying. Do not draw attention, was Raid's mantra for me. Wear a dead boy's name and fingers and do not stand out. Fall back. Fall dead. School bullies are one of those things we did not have back at home. When you only have five-minute breaks in between classes and you are out by 1 p.m., it does not leave time for much bullying. We learn our lessons and earn our stripes in soccer and block fights. Beer, scarves, palms and chants. Call it Serbian socialization. Call it hooliganism. Call it what you will. Blood begets blood and minds already spilled. I am in no hurry to get up. I wait. Instead, right hand gripped around homemade brass knuckles I'd pieced together from a few pipes I'd found in Raid's garage. He'd be pissed as hell if he knew I used his power tools. A bit proud, too. I don't know. The man hates me more than these three fuckers standing in front of me. I laugh as I know it will piss them off. I may not know school bullies, but I know the type. One of them made me an orphan four years ago. Teacher is holding my hand, and I can feel her trying to quiet the shakes. Her sweaty palms fail her as she's trying to get a better grip on me. My hand keeps slipping out. We are sitting in plush leather chairs, way too big for me. So I must lean forward in order not to be swallowed in. Smoke rises from the ashtray in front of our school principal, and it's a smell I both love and hate at the same time. He smokes the same cheap cigarettes as my dad. I can see two huge sweat stains under his armpits as he swings at the fly pestering him. It's summer in Mitrovica and there is no escaping the flies. He takes another deep puff and finally says, Jovo, son, 
There's been an accident. Your parents were in a car crash. Teacher squeezes my hand so hard it hurts. She tries to suffocate the cries, but a squeal comes out anyway. I look at her in confusion. What does this mean? Why is she crying? Should I be upset too? Are they in a hospital? I ask. He shakes his head. No. Are they on their way there? Do I get to leave early so they can go to hospital? Another squeal from the teacher next to me. She lets go of my hand and covers her face. No, son, the principal says. They are not. Well, where are they then? The teacher breaks down completely and runs out of the office. I can see at least three other teachers quickly disappearing out of the doorframe. Hallway echoes with the sound of heels, ratatat, like a machine gun. He looks at me, those big bags under his eyes looking larger than normal. We used to call him Principal Frog, behind his back. Jovo, they are not coming back. It was a bad accident. Their Yugo got hit by another car, a drunk teenager, from what we know so far. They didn't make it, son. I finally understand what he's telling me. My parents are dead. My mom, the woman who would pretend to sweep the yard every time I had to leave for school so I didn't see her cry, is dead. My dad, the man who'd wait until I was done eating every night so he could make sure I'd had enough and who often ended up eating leftovers, is dead. They are both dead and I will never hear them laugh at my silly fourth-grader jokes again or see them shoot funny glances at each other when I spent too much time in the bathroom. Dead. There is a sound from somewhere in the office, at first barely audible, but quickly rising. It takes me a second to realize it's me. I scream louder and louder and louder until there is no air left in my lungs and all I can see is a tunnel opening and Principal Frog is eyeing that fly. Darkness comes next. What the fuck is so funny? Jason moves in closer. I see his shadow extending past me on the ground. I laugh harder. I said, what the fuck is so funny, you freak? He leans over. Close enough. Brass knuckles catch him on the left temple, and he buckles down without a word. He hits the ground with a thud, and I put another kick into his teeth while he's still down. Something for him to remember me by. I jump to my feet and face the other two, my breath rising as clouds in the cold air. For a moment they stand there, eyes wide open, trying to process what's just happened. I know hesitation when I see it. Come at me and I will break your bones, I say. Liam Neeson be praised, it worked. They bolt before I can even say anything else. Take the first corner and run into the side street. Some camaraderie. They left Jason and do not look back once. I wipe the dead boy's fingerprints, my fingerprints, off the knuckles and walk down to the street and toss the thing into a trash can. The trash pickup truck is still a block away, far enough not to see me, but close enough to pick up the incriminating evidence before I get in trouble. I go back to Jason and kneel next to him. He is out cold, bump the size of a plum quickly rising on his noggin. I slap him a few times. He moans and starts blinking. I slap him again, harder. What happened? He asks, still somewhat out of it. You got knocked the fuck out, I tell him, but he does not get it. He grabs his head and shakes it a few times. I think I have a concussion. I'd say that's a fair guess. I help him up. You should go see a doctor. He seems taken by surprise. Why are you being nice now? You almost cracked my skull. I point to the brick wall I'd been sitting on before and motion him to sit down. He does, but eyes me suspiciously. Look, man, I have nothing against you. I get that you have some stuff going on at home or something, so you take it out on kids here. 
It's nothing new. That story's been played out so many times before. I get it, okay? My dad hates me too. So does my mom, I think. But I do not take it out on others. I own my shit. It hurts, and I hate being alive almost every day. But I own it. Do you follow me? He nods, still rubbing that temple. There is no shame in getting your ass kicked either. I wish more people would learn that lesson. I used to get beat up regularly back at the orf... Back home. In time, I learned how to avoid it and how to defend myself too. But I never hit first. And especially not from behind. Because you never know how crazy someone is until you look him in the eyes. His head hangs low and his shoulders are slouched. He rocks gently on the wall. Finally, he says, I don't have a dad. He left before I was even born. My mom makes good money, though, so it's not like we're struggling or anything. But these dudes she dates, man, I hate them. It's like a new one every six months, and they never even want to talk to me. Like I have the plague or something. They tiptoe around the house, and sometimes I never even meet the guy. But I see plates and glasses, you know, used condoms in the trash, stuff like that. It's like she and I live in different universes. It sucks. I wasn't lying to him. Three years in the orphanage, or kids' village, as they called it, taught me to recognize anger. And I was angry all the time. Since the moment the state social worker decided that, since I have no close family to go to after my parents' death, it would be best for me to live with other kids in these house communities. Families, they called them. It was bullshit. I had no family until Raid and Melina came. And some family they are. I unzip my backpack and hand him over a half-melted ice pack. Here, put this on until you get to the doctor. It should help with the swelling. And don't tell anyone how you got the bump. He takes it and places it on the injury, grimacing. It hurts. No shit. He jumps off the wall, knocking down a few loose pebbles in the process. So you just walk around with an ice pack in your backpack all the time? He asks. I jump off the wall, too. The crowd is starting to fill up the streets as it's getting closer to school time. I can hear the excited chatter and low beat of thumping subwoofers as the cars pull in. Someone's practicing an eight-bar, and it sounds semi-decent. There's too much perfume and too much Axe body spray in the air, and I realize I've forgotten to put on deodorant this morning. No. I say, drying off my armpits with the inside of my shirt. I work after school. Full shift at the salvage wood. Some days hurt more than others. Ice helps. You and your mom might be well off, but my folks are immigrants. We need every penny. Leah's good hands, strong, the doctor says. His eyes look bulgy, even though he's squinting. The room is dimly lit with more than half of the neon bulbs missing from the ceiling, the ones that work buzz and flicker constantly. It's giving me a headache. The bed is a solid piece of cold plastic, covered with a small towel, too small to warm up my naked back. I get goosebumps every time the stethoscope touches my skin. I chose well, Raid says, and I, for the first time in three months, detect no bitterness in his tone. Just... Stating the obvious. They sit across from me, in the corner of the office, chairs a continent apart. No tenderness between these two, not even for the show. Good, good. It will make it easier, faster recovery, doctor says. He works as he speaks, measuring, taking notes. Will it hurt? Malina asks, poor woman. I can almost make myself feel sorry for her. She is broken in the worst way. A shattered mirror. Pieces of her scattered all over the family house. I see them sometimes. The mask she puts on is more of a drywall than cement. Grief and numbness do not bond well. She still can't bring herself to call me by his name. 
my name. Hurt? Yes, it will. Like any major surgery. Doctor says. We are literally cutting off his fingers and replacing them. Don't worry, he will be under the whole time and on pain blockers while he heals. Ice also. Lots of ice. More than likely, he will have to ice those joints for the rest of his life. She nods, and for a second, something flashes across her face. Worry? Raid has no such problems. And it will be a success, yes. You have done this before? He asks. The doctor turns away from me and wipes his forehead with a tissue. There is half a dozen of those in the trash can already. I feel like cracking a joke. Something like, Hey, Doc, make sure nothing slips while you're cutting. But I know better. My new parents do not care for jokes or smiles. I miss mom and dad so bad it hurts. Yes, absolutely, he says. I perform three, four of these a year. I am yet to fail. Ray is chewing on his lip to the point of bleeding. I see a question forming under all that sustained indifference. So does my doctor. I know, he says. I could make millions out there somewhere. With the right team around me, I could probably do even more than just finger transplants. But ask yourself this. How long would I live with every single intelligence agency in the world out for my services? How long before they decide I'm more useful dead than alive? Once I train their staff, of course. He gets up and walks to the door. Flickering light makes him look almost cartoony. See those two guys in front? It's a statement, more than a question. Of course we've seen them. They are huge and packing. No one gets to see the dock without going through them first. Serbian mob. Zemun clan. I trust them with my life. You know why? Raid shakes his head. Honor. There is no debt stronger than honor. The doctor says, My first few patients were guys on the Interpol list. Gave a man a new lease on life, a new identity. Help him see his kids again, and he owes you more than money. I trust a thief. I don't trust a lawman. Especially if it's not one of ours. He walks back to his desk, pulls out a piece of paper, and hands it over to Raid. The price for you. I hear you are related to clan. I added a discount. Raid stares at it without a word. The vein on his forehead bulges and pulses a quiet storm. After a while, he hands the paper to Molina. She gasps and grasps her chest. How did these two ever find each other? I think to myself. That is a lot of money, she says. The doctor smiles. Yes, it is. And if you were not blood, I would not think twice about turning you down. But here we are, all trying to make a better life for ourselves, yes? They both stare at him. Mylena reaches out for Raid's hand, but he pushes it off. No sign of weakness in negotiations, I suppose. Only, he was always negotiating. So, here's what I'm thinking. You got the immigrant visa thing, yes? You were all set to go prior to the... accident? No kid? No visa. And now you still can. So you pay me over time, eh? It takes you ten years, maybe. Maybe you get lucky and this kid is smart enough to get a nice degree and you pay me off earlier. Who knows? You make your own luck over there. They look at each other in quiet understanding. They will go through with this, I know. I guess I've known from the moment they adopted me. I was never going to be Jovo, not with the shadow of the dead boy looming over me wherever I go. It's fine. I did not want to be me anymore. Too much pain in that one. I wonder how it will feel to be someone else. I wonder if my new parents will stop treating me like a means to an end. I wonder if they will love me. And what happens if we can't make a payment? Melina asks, her voice barely a whisper. The doctor smiles wider. His gaze moves from the couple to a sword collection hanging on the wall above their heads. I do not think the placement was accidental. I take the fingers back.
I'm sorry, kid, but you can't work here anymore. Greg says, my heart sinking through my feet and into a dark, deep pit. I swallow hard and carefully consider what I've just heard. Why? It's all I can manage to get through. He's nervous, keeps shooting glances behind me, to the open door and the lumberyard behind us. There are three huge piles of wood out there, rotting in the rain. It smells of mildew, even with a layer of vapor rub under my nose. A trick Raid taught me. I had a call from Bali. He says, someone reported me for having a 14-year-old work full-time. I lied and told them it's not true, but I can't risk them doing a full investigation. Not with the fines Oregon is slapping on us these days. I'm sorry, kid. He looks like he means it. Greg never lies to me. Even when he gave me a job for less than minimum wage, he was straight up about it. Yes, it's less money, but you won't get a job anywhere else until you're 16, and even then with limited hours. Them's the cards, kid. My fists clench, and I feel the itch in my fingers. I wish I had not given away my ice pack. Did they say who it was? I ask. Ah, come on, kid. You know how it works. It's an anonymous complaint. Always. He gives me a hug, and for the first time in years, I feel a genuine human concern. He was a capitalist piece of shit, but a caring piece of shit. I felt good. I'm not going to lie. You come back in a few years and the job waits for you, okay? Hell, with the way the state is raising minimum wage, I'll be paying you more than I pay myself, I reckon. Break the bank and all. Don't hug him back. I don't know how. I just walk out, exit the smelly yard, and hop on the first bus home. There will be hell to pay. I know. I stand outside the building and stare at the light in the window. It's raining harder now and I'm soaked through, a deep chill creeping up all over me. I can see Melina walking around the apartment working on dinner. Raid is probably already in his chair watching Blazers. I love basketball, but he never asks me to watch it with him. He never does anything with me, other than drive me to school. I might as well be dead to him. More dead than... The hallway of the building smells like cabbage and pork once I am inside. Melina is a good cook, not as good as my mom used to be, but she's trying. I think it keeps her sane. It's not easy, I know. Grief makes a hell of a sous chef. I hear the sounds of the game as I get closer. I am nervous. I have no idea how to tell them I lost the job. This is not one of those, oh well, there'll be another job types of things. We need the money not just to live. We need the money so we don't die. There are maybe a handful of Serbians in Portland, but I have no doubt some of them are connected. My fingers itch bad now. I walk in, hunkered shoulders and shaky knees. The aroma of the food is much stronger in here and mixed with tobacco smoke. Raid loved his pipe. The room is barely decorated, furniture more functional than aesthetic, Ikea stuff, mostly. In one corner, a huge TV on a tiny stand, defying physics. In the other, a glass case with an accordion inside. It used to belong to him, the dead boy. I hear he was good at it. When Mylena talks about it, she cries. Red does not, but there is something almost like pride in his words. Tonight, I get neither. You got fired, he says before I can even begin to explain. A plate shatters in the kitchen. If he knew, he did not tell Malina. Broken plates, broken family. How do we ever stitch ourselves together? There are no miracle doctors for that. Yes, I say. What did you do? I shrug my shoulders, but remain quiet. It's not like he will believe anything I say. I'll tell you exactly what you did. He continues, pipe dangling in his mouth. He does not slur words, ever. It's always calm and calculated. I sometimes wish he would drink, but he doesn't. 
I could deal with drunk rage. Oh boy, I would have a blast with it. But this, this cold steel thing gets to me every time. You hit that boy at school. He raises a hand to stop my denial. Don't even bother. I got a call from the school. Someone saw you. I am sorry. I say, but don't mean it. Why would I be sorry? I stood up for myself. My dad would have been proud. My fists are tight like rocks now, and the itch has turned to pain. It feels like bugs under my skin, burrowing. Sorry doesn't cut it, he says. Did you know his mom is a lawyer? Who do you think called the state and reported you? Mylena is out of the kitchen now, still holding the dustpan. She's numb again, defense mechanisms kicking in. Don't deal, don't deal, never deal, just push it all down. Raid, she starts, but he will not hear it. He's in the zone now, like those guys on the TV behind him. How many times did I tell you to keep quiet? How many times? Keep your head down. Do not make waves. Cretinu! Rage, finally, a language I can speak well. Call me that again and it will be your last time. I say it clear without raising my voice. Never shout your threats. They lose credibility with decibels. What did you just say? He says, Fire in my fingers matches the fire in my heart. I unload for the first time, finally finding my voice. You hurt me. What do you think I feel grateful for any of this? What kind of life is this? I am not him. I will never be him. I am not even myself. I do not know who I am. You have made me no one, no one. He stands there, dumbfounded. Mylena is already on the floor. No dustpan big enough to put her back together. I hate this. I hate it so much. You said you were going to take care of me, but you have done nothing of this sort. All you did is slap his fingers and his name on me and turn me into a ghost. I am a living boy, do you hear me? I am alive. He is not. I don't know how and when I got so close to the glass display. All I know is that the sound of glass breaking and Malina's scream merged into one and I found myself holding the accordion with every intention of tossing it through the window. Rage was a river running through me now and I rushed to join the ocean. A jolt of electricity in my hand, an explosion of white pain brings me to my knees. My fingers are in full spasms now, each and every one of them taking a life of its own. They contract and extend, a bizarre, worm-like dance, completely out of my control. I can only watch in horror as they intertwine and rub against each other, as if they are looking for someone, for something, a purpose. And then, the music. It starts out slow. Fingers feeling out the keys like forked tongues. Carefully here, a touch there. Exploring, testing out the boundaries. Notes feel the air a few at a time. Uncertain, searching, waking up from lost sleep. Moments later, hands run across the keyboard on one side and the buttons on the other. This time brimming with confidence. Melody breaks through, a violent and unbounded arpeggio, rising and dropping in octaves. Pushing through major chords, its pace frenzied but under control. This is a virtuoso in action. Whatever muscle memory, whatever magic this was, it comes from him, the dead boy. Something else is there too, a realization I am dead. I am alive. I am two boys merged into one, both equally lost to the people in front of us. One they can't and one they don't want to see. We want nothing else than to belong, to be loved. Such a small thing, but so distant. 
Our music picks up and it alters the tune. It slows down, drops a few registers. Playing out emotions is never fast. Sorrow is a slow burn. With the last notes out, the dead boy leaves. He says his final goodbye to the flesh he had forsaken a long time ago. I am abandoned yet again, kneeling on the floor. Accordion feels heavy, a dead weight around my neck. I look up. They are holding each other. For the first time since my adoption, I see Raid and Molina embrace each other, unashamed. There is no blame, no guilt shared between them. Tears run down both their faces, as if the grief that's been poisoning them for so long has finally found a way out. They pick me up off the floor and grab me from both sides, burying their faces into my wet clothes. We cry together then, the three of us. Today, I turned fourteen, wearing my own name and fingers. That was Ivan Zorick's Dead Boy Arpeggio, as read by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins is a voice actor residing in Denver, Colorado. He's voiced over a dozen audiobooks, including the popular Glenn and Tyler and Nick and Carter series. Brian also hosts the weekly trivia podcast, Dorky, Geeky, Nerdy. You can visit Brian at his website, thevoicesinmyhead.com, or on Twitter, at Voices of Brian. Thank you, Brian. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon via the link in the show notes, and like us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. I look forward to seeing you again next week, as we invade your mind with more Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.